7, which uh, started with the healing of the centurion's servant by Jesus, and then the widow Nain's son, uh, raising him from the dead. And then on Mother's Day, strangely enough, we looked at John the Baptist and somehow tied that into Mother's Day, and I felt pretty comfortable about that. Um, And then chapter 7 concludes with a sinful woman with a very costly uh, alabaster jar of perfume um, who comes and anoints Jesus. I covered that uh, on a Wednesday about two weeks ago, um, and and I I don't want to revisit it. It was going to be, in a sense, one of my messages in relation to Good Friday. I tied in a lot of that. If you want to cover that, you can go see that. I, but I wanted to jump right into chapter 8. So it's not that I haven't covered the last portion of chapter 7. Uh, I have, and I don't want to be redundant for those who come on Wednesday nights. So I'm going to cover now chapter 8, starting in verse 1. So if you have a Bible, open up to chapter 8. If you don't, these lovely folks walking down the aisles will give you a Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Uh, Before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, I just wanted to point out that, as I did earlier, it has been a contentious week in many respects. Uh, I've got my 17-year-old son who has been inquiring of me. Uh, Fascinatingly enough, he goes to a Christian school where I believe more than half the student body is pro-choice. And he's standing up putting um, uh, pro-life videos. And uh, he's contending with the kids at his school. And, and he, you know, we're going back and forth. I'm gleaning so much from his insights, and he's asking me uh, about some other areas. This is one of the areas I've come up against. I said, well, try this. And he goes, that's good. And we wrote it down. I walked him through what's called the SLED acronym. Uh, Stand to Reason does it with Greg Kokel. The SLED acronym is, uh, you know, if you're, if you're washing dishes at the sink and your little one comes up behind you and says, Daddy, can I kill this? your back is to your child and you hear, Daddy, can I kill this? The first question that you're going to ask is, what is it? Yeah, it's, it's this cockroach on the floor. Yes, step on it. Kill it. And if they say, it's my little brother, you go, whoa, hang on. Hang on, kiddo. So, so the, the main issue is, what is it? What is it? I mean, we, we're, we've got all the bumper stickers flying around and everybody's contentious and it is a hot topic. But the question is, what is it? Uh, uh, sperm and an egg come together, creates a zygote. Now, it can't be anything but a human embryo. It's not going to turn out to be a unicorn or a zebra. It's, it's a human being at its smallest stage. So with that statement that this is the embryonic human being, then why isn't it a human? And that brings you to what is called the SLED acronym. S-L-E-D, if you want to write it down, S-L-E-D, SLED. So their first argument is it can't be a human being because its size, it's too small. That's one of the main arguments. Good argument. But my response to that is, so you're telling me a smaller person is less valuable than a larger person. Well, they can't contend with that. So they say, well, it's its level of development. It's not fully developed. So again, I say, then you're telling me an adolescent is less valuable than a fully grown adult? And now that's diffused. And they say, well, it's the environment. It's in its mother's womb. And my comment would be, am I less valuable behind the pulpit than I am at home in my bed? But their their strongest one is their degree of dependence. It's dependent upon the mother to live, which is true. And I say, but does that mean that someone who's dependent on oxygen or insulin, a diabetic... 
or somebody with COPD is less valuable than somebody who's not. And, and there is a heartbeat. Even Alyssa Milano, who is very pro-choice, said during the fires that we removed everything in our home that had a heartbeat. And I kind of laughed at that because I thought, you're stating a pro-life position. There's a heartbeat. Well, not when it's in the womb. And, and my body, my choice. True, you, you have a full choice of your body. But that's not your body. It's a human being. Fully functioning human being with brain waves and ability to feel. And, and the strongest proponents of the pro-choice position are millennials. And the strongest opponents of the pro-choice position happen to be the Y and Z generation. It's one of the fastest growing youth movements in America of these young people that are finally at a place where, hey, I've seen pictures. When I grew up, there were, you know, we, the people who would come in on a pro-choice position were these elderly, and no offense to the folks that are older than me, but they, they struggle with public speaking. They didn't have any charts. And then the Planned Parenthood would come in and their presentations were just remarkable. And they had everyone in my class convinced it's not a human being. Well, as we've progressed with 3D ultrasound and these 3D images that are in color, and we see these things, this younger generation, Y and Z, is looking and saying, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? And these young folks are saying, this is a baby. Now, the culture screams in this capacity that's not. And then when we look at the statistics that over 40% of the abortions are on, on blacks in America, black babies in America. They, they represent 13% of the population in the United States. If you cut that in half, 6.5% for female. And then you have to reduce it even more to childbearing females, so it's about 4%. 4% of the population is responsible for already, over 40% of the abortions. It's, it's wholesale genocide of the black community. And you just, on your own, and you don't have to argue, you can be pro-choice, but I just want you to, we have to reason together, just look up Margaret Sanger and see who she was. They give out the Maggie Awards every year. Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist who wanted to get rid of, and I quote, the inferior races. Most of the Planned Parenthoods are in, in inner cities. Now, that's the reality. That's, that, that, you can still Google that, even with the suppression and the censorship. You can still Google that and see that to be true. And now, now the dividing line has occurred. And I don't so much think that the president has divided the nation as much as he's highlighted the division that already exists. And it's like a big highlighter. And, and now we're contending for culture, and everyone has to come to a place where we have to say, what are we going to do with this? As a minister of the gospel, my job is I sow seed. We're going to see in this parable, they call it the parable of the sower. I think that's a terrible title. It's not the parable of the sower. I'm, I'm the sower. I sow the seed every Sunday and every Wednesday night. I, I do it on the radio. I do it on podcasts. I do it on blogs. I, you know, it's, it's, I sow seed. The seed is the word of God. This is actually the parable of the soils. The soil is you, the human heart, and how you deal with these truths, what you want to do with them. And we're going to take a look at this. And I pray it ministers to you and maybe challenges you. You know, when you see somebody like Mikey Taylor and somebody like Jen Taylor awakening, this is going to come at a great cost to them to apply these truths. They, the minute they just showed pictures of them being baptized in the Jordan, they lost followers. I mean, that's how contentious of a culture we, we reside in now. This idea of hate speech. You know what hate speech is? Anything you disagree with that you don't want to hear. But we have the First Amendment. It's freedom of speech. 
You can't have your comfort zones and your, your safe spaces. This is America. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Our founders gave us the Bill of Rights, and the very first amendment was the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, the freedom of religion, and the freedom to peaceably assemble. Peaceably, not fascistly, peaceably assemble for a right of redress of grievances against the government. That's why we have the freedom. It's not who can shout the loudest and suppress the voice of the other. It's so that we can reason together, have these conversations. You can disagree with me. I'm not offended. An offended brother is harder one than a fortified city. There's not really much you can say to offend me. I've been there. I've done that. I've got the t-shirt. And I don't seek to offend you, but this is a position. Do you want to hear it or you just want to shout me out and silence my voice? Well, that's not a constitutional republic. We now live in an oligarchy, fascism. And with the censorship happening on social media, this is a challenge for all of us. And, and this is a fascinating insight because we're going to see that our founders declared in the Declaration of Independence the laws of nature and nature's God. It was the very first time that God was quoted of the four times in this Declaration of Independence, our founding document. And we're going to take a look at it in relation to the parable of the soils. So with that being said, would you please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord? I'll read out loud. You follow along silently. The passage reads, Now came to pass afterward that Jesus went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings. In the Greek, the word glad tidings means oulangelion, which means good news. And the good news is that God wants to be reconciled to man and resolve the sin issue by his son being a sacrifice for that. And that's the good news. The glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, speaking of the apostles, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's steward. By the way, the gospel had reached the highest levels of government. Here you have, you know, Herod's steward. His wife is saying, you need to tell him. Herod would even have a heart for John the Baptist, even though he had him killed. And here's a man being ministered to by his wife, Husa, and uh, he's, he's trying to minister to Herod. So that's how the, the gospel works. Herod's uh, steward, and then it says Susanna. We don't know anything about her, but, uh, oh, Susanna, don't you? That's the only part I know of in relation to her. And many others who provided for him from their substance. These women provided for him as he traveled. They were very helpful. And when a great multitude had gathered and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. Now the word parable is para, alongside. Balos means to throw alongside or to cast alongside. So you have a, a parable, which is a, an earthly illustration. He's going to use the sower. He's going to use the farmer. Uh, the, the earthly illustration and then to declare a heavenly truth. So he speaks in these parables, uh, uh, an earthly illustration to declare a heavenly truth. And he speaks in parables. And there's a reason why he speaks in parables. He says, um, uh, where I left off, oh, and when great multitude gathered, the sower went out. Okay, he said, he spoke by a parable. Verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, which means the paths in the middle of the fields. You can see the one right here in the middle. Some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture, which is the water of the word of God. It's gone, and so they, that it dries up and dies. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. Everyone say hundredfold. 
It'll be important for later, so keep that in your noggin. When he had said these things, he cried and said, He who has ears, let him hear. And I'm looking around the room, and that applies for everyone. And now he tells the purpose of the parables. Verse 9. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? He said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. If Jesus didn't want to be heard, he would just remain silent. But he spoke in such a way through these parables that some people would get it and others wouldn't. And it was all dependent on one thing, the the condition of the soil of their heart. Verse 11. Now, the parable is this, and Jesus explains it. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes, takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the one on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they had heard, go out and are choked with the cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And then one last verse I want to read to you. You don't have to turn there. It's found in 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Just hear the reading of the word of the Lord. Uh, Peter writing, he says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word, and I thank you for all who have taken time out of their lives to come to this place and receive from you your living and breathing word that's sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And Lord, as a sower throwing out the seed, I thank you that these men and women have come today with the soil of their heart prepared to receive all you'd have for them. So Lord, may they be fruitful. Bless them, God, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. This was a very discouraging passage of scripture for me as a minister when I initially read it years and years ago. The reason why is is it's called the parable in a sense of the sower, but truly it is the parable of the soils. And if you look at the soils depicted in the passage that we just read, there's four of them. And this is a kind of an illustration for you to see. You've got the, the stony, or you have the ground that is the pathway, like down the center. You throw seed in it. And, and it's not going to take root because this is hard pan. People have been walking on it. It's compressed. There's no way for that seed to get into the soil to lay down its roots. It is just, it's probably got some peat gravel on it. Uh, it. It's meant to not have anything grow on it. You want that pathway between your fields. And that's where the seed goes. And if I'm just scattering seed, I've got a bag of seed. I was thinking of doing it, but I was going to put people's eyes out. But you just throw this seed out there and it's going to land all over the place. And I'll walk up and down the rows throwing it and it'll land in different places. So be in your lap and in your eyes and you know and and as it lands everywhere the the center sections that you see these pathways it just these birds immediately these birds immediately come down and they're just waiting for the sower they're all in the trees waiting for him to start scattering the minute they scatter they come down for a free meal and they devour that seed some of it falls kind of on the edge of the pathway that has some stones that they've pushed and started to build it up. But there's been dirt that's been put over it because the field that they've plowed and the, and the hard ground of the pathway has kind of come to a, a boundary zone. So there's some soil in it, so it lands in it. And actually the stones heat up, so it's usually the first to germinate and sprout up. But it has nowhere to put its roots. And when the sun comes out, it can't get moisture and it dies. And then the third picture is 
you know, if you, it's been said that if you take 60 pounds of field for one acre of property, you need 60 pounds of seed to sow upon one acre of land. But it's estimated that as that sower is going out and throwing this 60 pounds of seed into this one acre of land, already contained in the land itself is 3,000 pounds of weed seed. So you, you, what you have to do is you have to wait for the weeds to germinate, and then they come to a position where they're, they're growing, and then you plow them under. Then after you've plowed the weeds, after they've germinated, then you throw the 60 pounds of profitable seed out into the soil. But if some of it, if you don't do it at the proper time, these weeds will grow up along with the, the, pro, the profitable seed, and it'll choke it out. And it'll destroy it because these weeds are taking the nutrients from the, the plant itself that needs them, and it'll kill it. And then, of course, you have the really fertile soil that's been plowed, it's been prepared, it was done in the proper season where the weeds had germinated and you've gotten to get those tilled under and, and this, this dying mulch is creating nutrients for the good seed and all of a sudden you have a hundredfold return. The reason why this is a discouraging picture for a minister is because um, for 18 years in the city of Thousand Oaks, I've been digging into this bag and throwing the seed out. And the seed, as we know from Jesus' description, is the word of God. And I'm throwing that out every Sunday and every Wednesday night and every chance I get, I throw that out. Well, the return on that investment is, you know, 75% of you end up in those categories of choked out or, or withered or just snatched up by the enemy. And I, I get 25% of you. And I have to say, the largest church in Thousand Oaks is a church of people that used to attend here. I thought that'd be funnier. <laughs> you run into them in the supermarket, and they, oh yeah, we attended for a season. Yeah, we're kind of doing our own thing. Or we're going over here, and that's usually comforting to me, because there's some really good sowers in this community. And I'm, I'm blessed. You're, you're in good soil. I am. We're, our family's doing great. Praise the Lord. But some of them, you just, you know, ah, oh, well, we got divorced. Yeah, our kids aren't doing too well. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, we, we lost that business. And I, I, my heart breaks, and you go through it. And when you're here 18 years, and you shop with folks, and you, your kids go to school together, you start to see kind of the, the burden of that, and your heart gets heavy. And, and I look at that, and I think, wow, that's, that's sad. And it can be discouraging as a minister. But oftentimes, my job is to throw the seed out. Where it lands is where it lands. I'm not responsible for the condition of the soil. You are. That's very comforting. It's your fault. (laughs) But still, that doesn't seem to comfort me. This is an older depiction of the different soils. And it was a, you can see the birds down there just waiting for it. And the rocky stuff and the weed choked. And here's another description. The reason why I'm throwing these up is because for some people, I, I, I don't get the first picture. Uh, the second picture, oh, that one. That's kind of new agey. I like that. I, 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 oh, oh. It's just to help you grasp it. And this one is another similar depiction of it. But what we're dealing with is seed. And it is the, it is the parable of the soils, not the sower. Yeah, I, I throw the seed out. The seed is the word of God. Seed is a fascinating, fascinating entity. It's hardware containing unbelievable software. It's remarkable what God's designed in a seed. 
There is, um, there's an old preacher in England, and uh, F.W. Borman, he inspired D.L. Moody and Spurgeon and a number of others. He's really a, a wonderful preacher, and he would tell these stories that were true, and, and, and uh, they were confirmed. And one of the stories he used to tell was about how his father would spend all of his spare time in the garden and he would, he would send the children down to the seed man to get seeds. And I want to read this account. My father would send us down to the seed man to get seeds. And this little old man at the seed counter would say, I sell magic. He would say with a musical little chuckle as he poured seed out of the box into the bottle or small little receptacle that we were to carry home to our father. He would say to us, it's all alive. And he would prattle on. Indeed, it is life itself. You drop it into the ground and it will multiply itself a hundredfold. You can't do that with parcels you get from the grocer or the butcher or the draper. This is the magic shop, boys. You've come to the miracle counter. And it was true. The old man poured into my palm the dry brown husks from his boxes and bottles. And I held it in the palm of my hand And what I held in the palm of my hand was the gardens and the forests and the orchards and the wheat belts of the world right there in the hollow of my hand. There is, in Israel where we just traveled, they found 3,000 year old date palms that were withered and dried up, but the, the seeds remained intact. And they were able to propagate these date palm seeds And they were shriveled, but they planted them and they were able to see them sprout. It's as though they took this antiquated, shriveled hardware and then put it into the ground and all of a sudden it started to click and turn on. I I was watching a portion of a documentary on the Voyager that was sent in the 70s out into space. It's 16 billion miles away from Earth now, still traveling and they thought this little engine that could is finished. And they're, they're still maintaining operations. And, and out of the blue, this little thing will spark up and send some data back. And they'll just be mesmerized by it. This little thing that was built in the 70s somehow aligns and gets its solar panels locked in. And gets enough energy to send a signal back 16 billion miles away. And it, it sparks up and starts operating. Well, this is a 3,000-year-old date seed, a, a, a palm seed, that all of a sudden you put that antiquated aged hardware and align it with, with the, the natural resources of nature, soil and water and light. And all of a sudden the software starts to kick in and it starts to sprout. And these little seeds start to rise. And, and what they've come to realize is in these palms that are, are being developed from these 3,000-year-old palm dates, they contain amino acids and polyphenols and antioxidants that they know nothing of today fascinating and these little seeds that software kicks in and starts to grow you see the little picture of the sunflower and I find that fascinating that you would have these seeds that would by this antiquated hardware still be able to operate their software and then they would begin to create these beautiful palm trees that hadn't been seen on the face of the earth in three thousand years but yet with these seeds come problems 
they require certain alignments as the Voyager does to align its solar panels to be able to get enough energy to send some sort of a signal 40 years after its launch. And, and what is required for these antiquated, aged hardware to cause the software to arise and, and speak to a generation 3,000 years silent sitting in a container? And what's required? It requires the laws of nature. That they would come to fruition. That they would experience the fullness of what they were intended to be. Palm trees. And for that to occur, you need soil. Not just soil. I mean, this would be considered soil, but a seed will not survive. Christ has described what kind of soil it is. It has to be, it has to be prepared. It can't be hard pan because that seed needs to be buried. It's got to have enough distance so that those roots, and it needs to know where it's up and where it's down, and, and that software starts kicking in, those roots go down, and if it's too shallow, it won't get enough moisture, and then it sends the shoot up through the soil, starts to gain photosynthesis, and starts to grow. And, and if it's not at the right time of season, the weeds around it will grow up and choke it out and destroy the plant. So what's required in the laws of nature is, is soil that's conducive to success. Soil that's conducive to success. We can plow the field, but if we don't do it in the right time of the season, as Jesus pointed out in explaining the parable to his disciples who had asked, he said the weed-choked seed never makes it to fruition to create a crop and reproduce itself because it gets overwhelmed by the cares of this world. F.W. Borman, the man who had recounted that story when he was a child, said this about those that have possessions. He said, It is comparatively easy to possess ourselves of money, learning, influence, power, fame, and a thousand other things. But a much more complex problem presents itself when we ask ourselves what we shall do with these things now that they are ours. You see, wealth isn't wrong. Abraham was very rich. But he lived in a tent. You see, the problem comes when your possessions possess you instead of you possessing your possessions. Do they consume your time, your treasures, and your talents? Do you lay awake at night looking at your portfolio on the ceiling? Is your money established for his kingdom purposes? Do you live realizing that you've been entrusted as a steward of these things for his glory? Or is it for your comfort? There's nothing wrong with comfort. I, I like comfort. I, I like I like pleasures of life. I like a good steak, as you can tell. I like entertainment. I like football. I like those things. But the question as we become men and women of possessions and affluence, what is the purpose of that? Why did God entrust you with that? What, what is the point of that? Is it to make your life more complicated? Is it to avoid all tr troubles and trials and to live in a comfortable realm and to, to surround yourself with people who are going to tell you, only going to tell you what you want to hear? Is it because you think money will help raise your children? If money were the secret to children being supremely successful, I don't think Hollywood has gotten that message yet. We have a role to play. And yet as a minister, I see the four categories. And as I said, time can bring it to a place of discouragement. 
Because you speak week in and week out, and I, I never make it about money. I never step into your world. I don't know what you make, and I don't want to know what you make. That's, that's between you and the Lord. But the question is, what are you doing to make your life fruitful for his kingdom? Why has he entrusted you with these things? The scripture says that the fruitful soil will produce a hundredfold return. A hundredfold return. And as I think about this hundredfold return and this idea of a miracle, every one of you can be that depending on the condition of the soil of your heart. You just take the simplicity of corn itself. This was the product that caused America to survive as the pilgrims arrived and were starving to death. And it was a, an Indian that had, uh, an American native who had been apprehended and enslaved and sent over to Europe was taught not only Spanish but the king's English and found a ship going back to the New World when he arrived. His entire tribe had been wiped out by smallpox. He connected with another tribe. And then when the pilgrims arrived, he greeted them in the king's English, Squanto. You can read the story yourself. He greeted them in the king's English. It had to floor them. Governor Bradford himself said that Squanto was a gift from the Lord. He was the one who taught them how to take a fish, put a a grain of corn in, in in proper soil, and it would produce. They needed fertilizer. Some people say that not only am I the sower of the seed, but I also provide the fertilizer, and I appreciate that. That's a little insulting, but I'm good with it. (laughs) But in the corn itself, fascinatingly enough, you have individual kernels. You have the pericarp, the endosperm, the germ, and the uh, the tip cap. And in that little white section surrounded by the yellow, in that little white section, this is all hardware, but in that little white section is contained the software. And that software, when given all the elements of nature, soil, water, light, all of a sudden you see this average ear of corn. It has 800 kernels in 16 rows. A cob will almost always have an even number of rows. You get 800 kernels out of one cob. How many cobs on a plant? Quite a few. And you take one kernel of corn and you plant it. What's fascinating is that one kernel of corn, if you were to plant it and get these kernels containing 800 kernels in each stalk or in, in, in each one of these ears, you take that and scientists say if you take that one, you're eating popcorn and you finish And there's one unpopped kernel. And you go and you put that in proper soil at the proper time with soil, water, light, laws of nature. The software kicks in. The plant sprouts. There's no weeds because you've planted at the proper time. You've done everything necessary. That grows. And then you harvest all of the kernels from each of the ears and replant all of those and do that for six years you will have enough to cover all the landmass on the face of the earth. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> you see, folks, I don't get discouraged in that sense because one of you being fruitful changes the world. But how do you make the other soils operate? You've got the hard heart. 
And the enemy is just waiting. I'm not letting the word of God get in there in any way, shape, or form. And I'm out there sowing that seed, and you're out there sowing the seed. And the minute it leaves our hand, these, these enemies of the gospel just snatch it up. The Ten Commandments will not be listed in any public environment in California. The Bible is not permitted to be taught during school. There's no such thing as absolutes. There's no moral knowledge. There's a separation of church and state. I watched hundreds of thousands of parents up and down the state, May 17th, pulling their kids out of school to contend with the California Teachers Association over this vile sex ed curriculum. Cost the state over a million dollars. That's fertile soil. How do your kids become fruitful? Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How does a child come to be fruitful? We've covered this before. We talk about the wise restraints that make men free. We apply restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence. We want our children to mature to these oaks of righteousness, to the fullness of... Some of them are supposed to be doctors and scientists. And how do we give them the elements of nature, the laws of nature and nature's God? How do we give them the elements to flourish and become fully what they were intended to be? We front load them. We front load them with education and understand university, unified diversity, different realms of, of education, whether it's, it's theology or political science or sociology or anthropology. All these different realms of study point to one unified purpose to glorify God and his kingdom and the laws of nature and nature's God. But we remove God from the equation and we just make them smart in the sense of knowledge, but they don't know what to do with this. And anytime we want to bring in anything moral, it's immediately snatched. And the birds just fly down and snatch it. And they contend for the minds of the children. How do we create soil fertile enough for them to experience the fullness of the nature God intended them? We know that sin comes easy to us. A kid to take drugs and check out is, we've, we've experienced this as a community. Fentanyl and opioids and the struggles we have in the community and some of you have lost your loved ones and it's been awful. We, we, we like water, we find the least common denominator. Sin doesn't, we don't have to study to become sinful, it's easy. I mean, you, you go to your child and you, you, you say, you've been studying too much, you need to go play your Nintendo. Said no one ever. <laughs> you, you're, you're challenging them. Apply restraints towards the idiot box so that you can become smart. So that you can, you can have a future with opportunity. Requires discipline. Applying restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence. And the idea is to create that soil in the lives of the children. And you say, well, that's why we bring them to church. We get them for an hour a week. Give me a break. The school system gets them for an enormous amount of time. They actually get them for more time than you get them. How do we cause that software to kick in so that the fullness of who they intended to be is realized? We have to stay on them. I, I think to myself, my wife and I spend an enormous amount of money to send our youngest to a Christian school, and yet I find that this Christian school is committed to this idea of social justice. Why do you add the word social to justice? There's justice. And then Christian schools should understand this. He's a God of justice. Now, I know that they mean social, meaning this idea of things that are important in the culture today. 
But that doesn't pan out in the realm of how everyone else says it. They're pushing towards a democracy which will lead to an oligarchy. I'll explain that later. And my son comes back saying, when the bill passed and they all were arguing and most of the people are pro-choice on our campus, I'm thinking to myself, what are we, what are we doing here? And, and I'm having these wonderful conversations with my son who is grasping it in a far greater capacity than I ever have. And here I am, 54, and I'm looking at him at 17. I'm like, dude, you are going to be a remarkably fruitful tree of righteousness. Well, that's what we do. We, we prepare that soil. You've got to sit with them and answer these questions and provide for them. And I'm a busy guy, but I don't want to get to heaven and say, Lord, the, the, the children you entrusted in my care, I didn't spend enough time with. Kids spell love, T-I-M-E. And I'll tell you, there isn't a better time to be about this. Because the one thing that takes those three categories of failure, the hard ground, the, the stony ground, and the weed-choked ground, and allows all of that ground to become fertile, and I've said this before, is, is very simple. It just requires plowing. You take a, a good tiller right down the center of this thing with diamond tip blades, and you can even till this concrete. You just lift out those stones, and you can prepare any ground on the face of the earth and make it fertile. Put a little topsoil in there, work it, till it, work it, till it, work it, till it. Wait for those weeds to come up, till them under, get that mulch going, and now you've got fertile soil regardless of what you thought the field looked like. Plowing is a difficult task. Everything you thought you saw before is completely plowed under. And the reason why I think, especially in our community right now, is because we as a community have been heavily plowed. A lot of people wouldn't listen to me. And then the tragedy hit. Folks would always keep me in an arm's distance. Their world may have been the center path or the stony ground or even consumed with the cares of this world and the baubles and the trinkets and their wealth. But when that day occurred, it was like a A big tractor came through our town, just churned everything. And everybody was just had their knees knocked out from under them. Folks who wouldn't give me the time of day nor wanted anything pertaining to Scripture all of a sudden looked at me not as the mayor pro tem and not as a council member, but as a minister. Conversations with people I I would have never have imagined occurred. It's not fun to be plowed. Some have been plowed more than others. I'll tell you though, the soil in those lives that have kept their eyes on the Lord. I watched as the families of the victims and I said this to the governor. I said this to him. I said this to the state senator. I said this to our state assembly member. I said when we went to Sacramento with all the families, and trust me, it is not a club anyone wants to be a part of. I said this to each of those politicians. I said, you think you're inviting them up here to minister to them, but you have no idea. They're here to minister to you. You have no idea. I watched as these family members 
probably in that course of time, hugged 10,000 people. They were a point of contact and mourning where their whole lives were devastated and they're pouring into others. At the notification of the death of their loved one, when the room erupted, they were the ones to minister. Fascinating. Humbling. Fruitful. The shade of the mighty oak of these lives have enveloped and blessed our community. I've never seen such fertile soil in the course of my time here in this city. Yeah, every patch of land can be fertile. It just requires plowing. And we've been plowed. It's been devastating. But interestingly enough, as I bring the message to a close, our founders understood this parable of the soils. They understood it so deeply that the very first invocation of God himself in this birth certificate of our nation. The very first time they invoked God into the birth certificate of our nation was found in the opening of the Declaration of Independence where it said, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate but equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation, which they go on to list. The idea of slavery, the idea of of no taxation without representation. They would go through all of this. This idea of accountability towards God, accountability towards each other, a representative form of government, a republic, madam, if you can keep it, is what Benjamin Franklin said to the woman when they came out of the Constitutional Convention. But in this Declaration of Independence, it wasn't for America. It says when in the course of human events, it was any time, any place, any people. It was a declaration of liberty. And the way it declared is that the laws of nature and nature's God. For mankind to flourish and to experience everything God intended them to be and to experience and to have, they require the soil, they require the light, they require the water, all of the conditions of nature to allow humanity to flourish. Freedom. Cast off the bonds of restraint. And Jesus would say, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This idea of binding towards evil in order to pursue excellence. The idea of loosening the restraints of oppressive government in order for man to experience the fullness of his nature. Fascinating. We see this idea of being leaven in Matthew 13 that we infuse the the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who sowed leaven into a lump until the whole lump was leavened and, and we infuse the culture with the leaven of God to cause it to rise to the glory of God. You see, your men and women whose hearts, if the soil is properly prepared, will produce in a community that which the rest can flourish with. John Adams would go on to say, our political way of life is by the laws of nature and of nature's God and of course presupposes the existence of God, the moral ruler of the universe and a rule of right and wrong, of just and unjust, binding upon man, preceding all institutions of human society and government. I share this because here we are in a culture that we're contending 
for the soil of human hearts. And I throw the seed out. That you've been fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I knew you. That Jesus in the womb, in contact with John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth, Jesus in the womb of Mary, the two boys leap and they both have names. They're not blobs of tissue. That my son would come to me and say, Dad, they say it's not a baby. You're washing dishes at the sink. What is it? As you wash those dishes and the child says, can I kill this behind you? First question is, what is it? It's a cockroach. Yes, kill it. It's my little brother. No. I tell my son, the question remains, what is it? God says it is a human being. It's a kernel of corn. It will produce corn. It is a human being. It will flourish. It should be in the most fertile region of humanity in the womb of a mother. But it's my body, my choice. It is your body. But the baby in your womb is their body. The choice happened before. It's not suppression of women. By the way, most babies aborted are women. The scripture says it's a human being. Well, it's too small. The SLED acronym, it's too small. So a smaller human being is less valuable than a larger human being. I'm sharing with this my son. Fertile soil watching this oak of righteousness. It's its level of development. It's not fully developed. So you're saying that an adolescent is not as valuable as a fully grown adult. It's its environment. It's in its mother's womb. So I'm not as valuable here behind the pulpit as I am in my bed and at home. And their strongest argument is degree of dependence. It's dependent on its mother to live. Yes, this is true. Absolutely true. Yes. But what you're saying, in essence, is anyone who's dependent on oxygen or insulin as a diabetic is less valuable than someone who's not? What is it? And that hurts. Boy, that truth went out. Boom. Boom. Some of it in there. Okay. I get it. And then you get ostracized, and then it shrivels and dies. Some of you get it, and it goes in good. But then, you know what? It affects my business. It affects my wealth, my livelihood. Shrivels, dies, gone. We've aborted more babies in California than the entire population of Canada. Some people won't come back next Sunday. I get the intensity of it. But this is the parable of the soil, not the sower. You go ahead and go to lunch today. And you comment on how I sowed that seed. Did you see how he threw his leg out when he did it? <laughs> and clumps over to the left. He didn't give much to the right. We didn't get it in the back. We spend all our time 
just picking apart the technique of the sower. When in reality, it's the condition of the soil. That's comforting. Because that's your problem, not mine. Let's pray. <laughs> Folks, that's for you. And that's you and the Lord. And, and, the, and I'll leave you with this. The beautiful thing about Mikey and Jen. God's blessed them. They got a lot on the line. To take a position on any one of these issues... They're prone to hard ground, stone-filled ground, and weed-choked. But they're receiving it in a prepared field, ready for an abundant harvest. I'm proud of them. I'm humbled by them. Every Sunday, I speak to a pretty friendly crowd. There's still a place to meet, even though... I have the gift of preaching it down to a manageable size. But Sunday in and Sunday out, I have to say, this is the most fertile soil in the entire canal. May this word bless you. May you be fruitful and multiply in Jesus' name.